I'm Michael Sears at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. We're talking about the new ethics course. There are many different ways of forming midshipmen ethically on the yard. But at the heart of moral formation at the Naval Academy is a required course taken in the sophomore or youngster year, Moral Reasoning for Naval Leaders. There have been a number of important changes recently to that course. We want to focus on those changes for the duration of this series. They've resulted in a most distinctive course, one that is unique in higher education. There is nothing else remotely like it. I'm joined by Professor Chris Eberly. Dr. Christopher Eberly is a professor of philosophy in the Naval Academy's Leadership, Ethics, and Law Division, where he has taught since 2001. Professor Eberly, you've been one of the leaders in the process of taking a hard look at how we teach ethics at the Academy. Can you give us a little background on the course and the process? Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you very much for having this conversation with me. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, it probably it's best to begin with a bit of history. Uh, the, the ethics course that we currently teach was begun um, in the late 1990s as a response to congressional legislation actually mandating that the academies uh, educate midshipmen in ethics. So this, there's actual legislation that requires that the academies teach this particular course. Re- originally, the, the background to the course was primarily designed to help midshipmen be clear about the moral responsibilities of officership to understand the specific moral questions that they might face as an officer in the United States military, Navy or Marine Corps. The course was originally, and still is, required of students when they're sophomores. And there's a reason for that. The mids have to make a long-term commitment at the beginning of their junior year. It's called the two for seven commitment. And that's when they decide they're gonna continue their education at, at the Naval Academy through their senior year. And then they'll have a five-year commitment after that. And the idea was, the course was supposed to help midshipmen understand exactly what they were committing themselves to. So that's the reason why the course is taught during the sophomore year. And it's kind of a, a desire to have informed consent on the part of the midshipmen. That course was begun in the late 1990s. It had a number of distinctive features that are still retained today in the course. Probably the most important one of those features is the fact that the course is team taught. It's team taught by civilians and military professionals. So the way the course works is on a Monday, a civilian philosopher or theologian, it depends, uh, will articulate a 50 minute lecture on a philosophical topic from Aristotle, from Plato, from the history of philosophy. That provides the students with a theoretical background for a particular issue. The next two sections, the students meet with a military professional who has extensive experience in the Navy or Marine Corps to to, to take that theory and apply it to the specific circumstances of their vocation. And that is absolutely critical to the messaging and to the content of the class. It's one thing for a civilian academic to articulate a certain moral principle. It's another thing entirely for a military professional to do that. What we want is for there to be uptake on the part of the midshipmen. And for that, it matters who says who articulates the moral principles, not just what the moral principles are. So if a Marine Corps colonel who has experience in Iraq says, we don't target non-combatants in this way or that way, that has a far greater impact than if a civilian philosopher who has no background in the military says exactly the same thing. So the team taught part of this course is critical. It also has another implication. 
our long-term consequence. We've been at war for the past 20 years. So course was begun in the 1990s. For the next 20 years, uh, we have been at war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Because the course is team taught by military professionals, those we have a lot of folks cycling through who have been deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq. And what they do is they provide us with case studies, experiences that they've had, where the theoretical topics we want to address have some kind of a manifestation in their lives. And so they will help us develop and write up case studies that are realistic, that help the MIDs identify in a concrete way the kinds of decisions that they will have to make. And then there's one final thing um, that, that this sort of initial structure of the course provides. And it's a really important one, although it's one that we struggled with over the years. And that is because we have officers from across the yard who participate in the delivery of this class, they acquire a common moral vocabulary. They acquire an understanding of the specific content that we deliver to the mids. So the mids get this content, officers from all across the yard acquire this content, and it provides a kind of moral framework for folks who teach and work at the, at the Naval Academy. You know, that's an excellent primer on the course as it stands right now or as it stood. But, you know, if it's such a terrific course, why make these changes? Yeah, right. So there was a fortuitous event. In 2016, we had an external review committee. Included um, the dean of the Jepson School of Leadership, a moral philosopher, and an officer from the Air Force Academy. And they came in and we asked them to help us evaluate the effectiveness of our curriculum in our division, and specifically any 203. And I have to say, they loved the class. And there's a re I mean, it's a terrific course. It is really wonderful. And they loved it. But they felt like there were a number of ways in which we could improve it. And their recommendations have proved to be profoundly influential in, in determining how we altered the course into its current state. So here's an example. The folks who had initially began the course, developed the course, they were philosophers. And so they developed a course kind of in their own image. Philosophers like to talk about moral theories. They love to talk about Aristotle and Plato and engage in debates about what Aristotle meant by this or that passage. That's really interesting to philosophers. But to non-philosopher midshipmen, and also to the military officers who teach that, that can be confusing and off-putting. It can be really confusing because when you're given a plethora of theories, it's really hard to know which of those theories is correct. And so what happens is our experience was that over the years, it seemed like the, the material that we were delivering to the students ended up confusing them more than it helped to clarify immoral, important moral principles for them. So th that was something that this this committee recognized, and they suggested pretty strongly, you need to do a lot less theory, you need to have a lot fewer conversations about how to interpret ancient texts from Aristotle or Plato or Augustine. Spend a lot more time talking about other topics that are more personally engaging to the students. And so what they suggested was that we develop a course that's focused more on moral virtue than on moral theory provide the students with an opportunity to practice virtue. Aristotle says the goal of a course like this shouldn't be just knowledge about what virtue is, but actually to become good. And that was at the heart of their suggestion to us, to try to find ways to engage the interests and the desires and the emotions of midshipmen 
so that they become interested in their own moral formation. The suggestion was, hey, less is more. Cover fewer topics. Give the mids more time to think about things, to reflect on things. And so that's what we ended up doing. There's another component to this, if you don't mind as well. Uh, Really influential with the committee as well as with the committee members was a book by an eminent sociologist from Notre Dame. His name is Kristen Smith, and he's uh, he's studied youth culture over the years. It's a a fascinating study that he's done. He's published a number of books as a consequence of this research program, one of which is entitled Lost in Transition, The Moralist and Spiritual Lives of Emerging Adults. And he paints a pretty grim picture of young people, 18 to 23, precisely the age group of kids who are coming into the academy, who have had very, very few opportunities to engage in moral formation. Moral formation typically occurs in institutional contexts, when you're part of a group, when you're part of a team. That's how your character is formed. And throughout society, those kinds of institutions have played less and less a role. They become more entertainment-oriented and, as a consequence, less effective in developing midshipmen. And so that... Uh, Smith's book really provided us with an impetus to focus on the formation of moral character to provide for our students what many of them have not had much of an opportunity to do. I mean, the sense that Smith gives about the current state of our emerging adults is they have these desires, they have these emotions, and they, they just think that they're stuck with them. They don't have the sense that they can actually develop their character that there are places that they can go and things that they can do with themselves to improve themselves. And of course, the academy is committed to the formation of moral character. And so we felt like we needed, and the committee felt like we needed, to to articulate a course with content that better matched the core mission of this institution. Let me not be too controversial. Are we not going to say the names Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, Milne? I mean, are, are those names not going to be mentioned? So we do retain some of the sort of the ancient uh, classical authors. Uh, We retain readings with Aristotle. But the the problem is that our mids are not philosophy majors. And the overriding goal of this course is to help them think seriously about their own lives as moral agents. And the long discussions that we would have, say, on a really difficult philosopher like Immanuel Kant, we would have long conversations about what really difficult texts meant. Like, what does he mean when he says X or Y? That is confusing to a lot of people. So it's not that we didn't want to talk about Kant. It's that Kant was not an effective vehicle for the goal that we aspire to achieve. So what we'll do is we just have other philosophers who articulate Kant's philosophy in more straightforward terminology, so that we don't have to get bogged down on exegetical debates about particular passages. We lay out the content. We say these are Kant's ideas. Many of the writings in the newer version of the course, the philosophers um, who teach the course actually have written up, have developed. And so the material is still there, but we don't actually do the primary source readings. I have to say that was controversial. You know, you can't make a change like this to a course without some disagreement amongst the philosophers, the folks who made this change. Uh, but the overriding sense was our primary aim is the moral formation of midshipmen and which readings are going to help those mids take seriously their own needs to form their own character. 
So that does mean some of the primary source material has been um, lessened. Well, that's the beauty of the Academy small a, uh, as you guys are focused on the Academy big A. Can you be specific about how the revised ethics course achieves that aspiration? Yeah. So yes, we pretty thoroughly restructured the way the course is organized. A lot of the material has remained the same. I mean, a significant amount. We have, as I said earlier, we have a lot of case studies that we've developed over the years, specific scenarios in which officers had to make very difficult decisions. And those case studies, we have by and large kept, put them in in various parts of the course. And sort of what we've tried to do is come up with a structure of the course that is intuitively clear to the students and helps communicate the core message that we want them to take out of the course. So what we've done is we've divided the course into four components. The first, and so what I'll do is just go over these sections. The first uh, part of the course uh, is a section on, a two-week section on moral perception. The idea here is that different people see the world in very different ways. I mean, you can have two people, they're, they're located in exactly the same room, light waves are bouncing off the same objects and hitting their retinas in pretty much the same way. But what they notice is very, very, very different. One of the core messages of this course is that what you are aware of and what you are not aware of is one of the most important moral facts about you. And in particular, you are morally responsible for what you are aware of and for what you are not aware of. We have a number of case studies in which officers make bad decisions because they are just not paying attention to the things that they should be paying attention to. And so moral perception, that idea that different people see the world in very different ways and that we're responsible for the way we see the world, that is the core idea of this first part of the course. We have a number of readings about it, and I'm very excited. I hope in the next couple of weeks we can chat about uh, some of the specific cases that we use to talk about that. I do want to mention one uh, right off the bat. Uh, Throughout this course, we have readings from a really troubling powerful book by Jim Frederick. The book is called Black Hearts. Uh, he's a, he was a reporter. He recently died. And it's his investigation into the backstory to a really horrific event that occurred in Iraq in 2007, where four soldiers in an isolated outpost, dressed as insur- insurgents, left the outpost, went to a local house, um, raped a local Iraqi girl, killed her parents and her younger sister, and burned the bodies. It's a horrific event. Frederick heard about it and wanted to investigate it. And the more he talked to people, the more they said to him, you have to look at the context. You have to look at the, the, the military unit that they were part of, the leadership of that unit, their lack of being resourced appropriately. That book, Black Hearts, has a, a whole bunch of important lessons. But probably the most important lesson is just how powerfully your environment can shape how you see the world and how over your being in a really difficult environment over a long period of time can warp your perception of the circumstances in which you find yourself. We perceive our circumstances through our emotions. Our emotions powerfully shape what we are and what we are not aware of. And when you're in a really toxic environment, that can lead you to have some really negative emotions about 
the people with whom you interact. And that, so Black Hearts is a book about moral perception and the way in which our, the way we see the world, soldiers see the world, officers see the world, can be powerfully shaped by their environment. And 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 mids need to be aware of that. Right now, so the ideas in the, in the cool of the day in a classroom at the Naval Academy where students have time to think about things, they can learn about these kind of cautionary tales and begin the process of preparing themselves for what they might be in that kind of situation. So that's the first part of the course. Professor Arberly, that's an interesting case study, but are we just giving midshipmen excuses for the actions of their sailors and Marines? Yeah. So as I see it, it's not excuses, but a warning. It's, it's a warning about how your environment can powerfully shape your perceptions. And, um, and it's in the overall context of, of, a, of a really demanding responsibility. I think that a lot of our mid, this is a new idea to a lot of our mids, but not, maybe not to those of us who have a bit more life experience than them. But the idea that they are responsible for things that they aren't actually aware of is, is a surprising idea for them. And when, when you explain it, it makes sense to them. I mean, I, I have two boys, two, I guess they're young men right now. The one, one just graduated college and one's in college. And we have this kind of conversation all the time, right? Um, you, you, son, you came home. Uh, you walked right through the kitchen. You went to the TV room. You got the nachos. You got the chips. You sat down and watched TV. And uh, I walk in and I'm like, son, what are you, what in the world are you doing? And he's like, what do you mean? I mean, chips, dad, what's the problem? And I said, you walked right by the kitchen. What's on the kitchen? I don't know, dad. Um, I'm like, there are dishes there. Uh, did you want me to come home from work and do that while you sit there eating chips and salsa? And of course, the response of my kid, as the response of so many kids is, well, dad, uh, why are you mad at me? I didn't even notice that they're there. And of course, the fact that he doesn't notice that they're there is itself a moral indictment of him. He is responsible for paying attention to his environment. And he doesn't notice that the dishes are there because he simply expects me to do it. It's a it's an attitude of entitlement. I love my boy, but this is an important issue for them. And it's really important for officers who are responsible for taking care of their subordinates. And it's really easy to miss that kind of thing. That sounds like a very, very big lift. How about the next thing we're doing? Absolutely. So the next, the next topic is is on more of the liberation. And this is probably the, uh, one of the most difficult things that we try to do. And um, we're still working on this, to tell you the honest truth. So as I mentioned earlier, the original version of the course focused really heavily on moral theory. So we were reading John Rawls, and we were reading Immanuel Kant, and, and Aristotle, and uh, John Stuart Mill. That's some pretty heavy material and difficult to understand some of it, the Kant and the Rawls in particular. And students struggled with it for 20 years. So what we decided to do was take a lot of that theoretical material and try to boil it down to a series of questions that midshipmen could ask themselves when they face a moral question. So instead of engaging in extensive conversations about the meaning of somewhat opaque philosophical texts, we say, okay, if you're in a situation, you have to make a moral decision. Here is the first question that you need to ask yourself. And then here is the second question you need to ask yourself. And the third and the fourth. And so we articulated what we call a moral deliberation roadmap. It takes elements from the various theories that we talked about before, 
So the students need to have some way of deliberating morally. Many of them have no clear idea about how to go about doing it. Their ideas are kind of like a jumble, a mush. They, they just don't know how to think morally. And so it's really important that we provide this for them. But what we did was we, we come up with a stripped down version of moral deliberation. The idea is basically you, uh, you begin with the broadest moral concepts. So what we do is we begin with an essay uh, articulating the idea, the concept of moral dignity or moral sacredness and the rights that are grounded on human dignity or human worth. We spend a lot of time talking about what do we mean when we say that human beings have dignity and worth? What do we mean when we say they have equal dignity and worth? How does the worth and dignity of human beings connect with the idea of human rights? Can you forfeit your rights? Right. So, so the first question that we ask MIDS to think about is, okay, you're just one human being amongst a whole bunch of other human beings, and all of you, each of us has equal dignity and worth. What kind of impact should that have on how we treat our fellow human beings? You hear this language all the time, right, in our culture now, treat people with dignity and respect. I don't think that people have a very clear idea about what that means. Let me jump in for a second. Are you giving the school solution on what the Navy and the Marine Corps think your moral perspective should be? (laughs) Yeah. A topic about which we have had many, many hours of discussion. So... Um, we are articulating a deliberative framework that we believe is going to be helpful to our midshipmen. We think that this is going to be useful to them as officers in the United States military. They are free to reject this deliberative framework. There are people who do not believe in anything like the idea of equal human dignity and worth. There have been whole cultures who deny that idea. And at the end of the day, of course, we're not going to say that you need to affirm this idea in order for you to get an A in the class or do well in the class or anything like that, or or even be an officer in the United States military. So what we do is we say, we are not trying to be morally neutral here. This is our deliberative framework takes a stand on a number of controversial issues. We're going to be clear about where we have taken a controversial stand, but we're also going to encourage you to take this seriously at least. Try it on. See how it works. So we articulate this idea of human dignity, and then we say, okay, let's think about these the moral implications of that idea, all the while realizing that some of the students might come away with this and say, I just don't buy that. And so this won't work for them. That's There's no alternative to that in a class full of students who come from a whole variety of different backgrounds. We live in a pluralistic society. People disagree. We're going to try to do the best we can to help them think morally. But at the end of the day, they have to make up their own mind about these issues. So we begin with this idea of human dignity, and then we try to trace out its implications for all kinds of different concrete issues. That's just the first part of our deliberative framework. There are a whole bunch of other moral factors that you need to take into consideration if you're going to deliberate well. So it could be that after you reflect on the idea of human dignity and rights, you're still left with a whole series of options that are compatible with human dignity and rights, but aren't mandated by it. 
And so you have to say, well, what do I do in that situation? And so for that, we provide them with a way of thinking about how our actions impact the well-being of other people. In In philosophical language, this is sort of consequentialist considerations. What are the effects of my actions going to be on the well-being of my fellow human beings? And you have to think about things in terms of their long-term impacts and their secondary and tertiary impacts. These are going to be really familiar ways of thinking to people in the military and just ordinary human beings. We make those kind of judgments all the time. We begin with the first step to the deliberative framework is the idea of human dignity and its connection with rights, and then consequential considerations. How do my actions affect the well-being of others? The third component of the deliberative roadmap is the idea of special obligations. This is really important for our class. This is not a topic that we would probably cover nearly as much if we, say, taught this class at the University of Michigan or Maryland. But for officers in the military, right, they're going to have a mission. They're going to have subordinates that they have a duty to protect. And they're going to feel those obligations very, very, very powerfully. It's one reason why we want them to begin with the idea of human dignity, precisely because in a military organization, the bonds of group loyalty are so powerful. We want them to think about that after they've already taken into consideration the idea of human dignity. So the third thing they need to ask about is what kind of specific special obligations do I have to the people over whom I have authority? And then the last element of the deliberative framework has to do with personal issues about their own character. The actions that we perform affect our long-term character. They affect our habits. They change who we are. So, for example, people, right, there's a difference between somebody who lies on occasion and somebody who is a liar. That is who they are. You become a liar by lying on a regular basis. It's the first, I mean, we've all met people like this. We've all met people for whom, when they get into a difficult spot, the first thing that they sort of reach for in their little toolkit of things to do is, I'm going to deceive, I'm going to dissimulate, I'm going to lie. And it's that kind of habitual wrongdoing that affects your character. That's the last thing that you need to take into account. So you can think of this deliberative framework as a kind of inverted triangle. It begins with the broadest considerations, start with issues of human dignity, and it ends with how is this action that I'm contemplating doing or not doing How is that going to affect me and my character over the long term? So that's our deliberative roadmap. Now, the third part of our course, this is another, the the second part of our course is a five-week module. The third part of our course is probably the most innovative part of the course. It's the part of the course that I personally am most excited about. It is the most distinctive part of the course, and it's the one that fulfills the mandate of the visiting committee that initiated all these changes probably in the most clearly. It's a five-week section on moral virtue. So it's easy to articulate the, the, the sort of academic content of this course. So we begin with a week on reflecting on Aristotle and on his Nicomachean ethics, where he articulates just his account of what a virtue is and how you acquire it. And then the next week, we have a really wonderful section. It's a really fun, rich discussion on pride and humility, where we pit Aristotle against C.S. Lewis. Aristotle says that pride is a virtue and humility is a vice. Lewis says, no, humility is a virtue and pride is a vice. And so we have a really, really rich conversation about what humility is, what pride is. Are they disagreeing with each other? Is it okay for me to be proud of my kid if he does something really terrific? Is it okay for me to be proud of being a graduate of the Naval Academy? So 
great, great topic of conversation. The next week is on temperance. And again, this is so important for officers, for all of us as human beings, but in particular for officers. Temperance, of course, is the the virtue whereby we control our desires. And we want we want to experience pleasure. We want to satisfy ourselves. And that can be a source of great temptation. And so we spent a lot of time talking about self-control, the importance of self-control, techniques for exercising self-control, and also distinguishing between self-control and temperance. So it's one thing for me to have a desire to do something and to resist that desire if I think it's going to go help make me go wrong. It's another thing for me to actually change my desires so that I no longer want to do the wrong thing. That is the virtue of temperance. It is changing what you want to do. We've all experienced this kind of thing before. When you first start engaging in a kind of athletic activity, you start running long distance, it's really uncomfortable. It's painful. It takes a long time to get used to it. The longer you do it, the more habitual you make the long, the long distance running, your desires change. It's no longer not as painful before, but you become addicted to it. If you don't engage in this long distance running, you miss it. You feel bad. You want it. That's the virtue of temperance, shaping your character so that you desire what is excellent and what is good. We address this topic now by working through some ancient texts, right? So we we talk about Stoicism, the the philosophy of Stoicism, as a way to think about how to develop the virtue of temperance. The last thing that I want to mention here, just in terms of course content, is a kind of a, a transitional topic between the virtue section of this course and the just war section of this course. That's the last part. And this is a, um, a week where we begin talking to our, we talk with our mids about, about moral injury and how virtuous people respond to moral wrongdoing. The impetus behind this is the following. There's a real danger in how we used to teach the class We used to spend a lot of time talking about the higher moral standard that mids have to satisfy. Officers have to satisfy a standard of conduct in battle and in life that is much more difficult to satisfy than, say, your garden variety citizen. That's the idea. Mids are told all the time, you know, you're the best and the brightest, right? There's all these messages about these high expectations we have for them. And that's important and excellent and wonderful. But an important part of the moral life is how you respond to yourself when you have done something wrong. Every one of us fails. Every one of us commits moral wrongdoings. We are violated or wronged by other people. And those wrongs that we do or that others do to us can be powerfully engaging emotionally. That's true in, in a deployment and combat setting. It's true in Bancroft Hall. So we spent a lot of time talking about moral injury, the harm to people that results from being wronged or by committing wrongs. That's a critically important part of this class. It's one of the most important improvements in the pilot. And to do this, we we read a wonderful essay by David Luban, where he appeals to a medieval Jewish philosopher named Moses Maimonides, who articulates a conception of atonement as a way to think about how we deal with moral injury. It's a wonderful essay and a great topic. So that's the course content. But for this third part of the course, what's most innovative about it is that we actually have worked really hard to try to find ways of providing midshipmen with the opportunity not just to know what the virtues are, but to develop virtue. That's 
something that I don't know of any course in higher education today that has that aspiration. So it's not just there to learn what people have said. It's there to get the tools on board to know how to develop the things that you need going forward. That is exactly right. So so what we do for each one of the virtue weeks where we study a theoretical topic, we also provide them with sort of like moral exercises. So things that they need to do during the course of that week that help them to develop one or another virtues. So, for example, when we first begin talking about Aristotle, we have our students engage in three 30-minute sessions of silence and solitude. We ask them to separate themselves from anybody else, to be isolated, to be quiet, take their AirPods out, shut their iPhones off, be alone. And think about what your aspirations are in your life. Think about what makes you anxious. Think about whether your anxieties help you achieve the aims that you have in life or impede you from doing so, right? And then what we do is we have them construct relatively short reflection papers. At the After they've done these exercises, they sit down, they write up, how hard was this? What did I learn from this? How did this help me? Did this not help me? That's the first week. Then we have a num- we have a number for each week we have these activities. So for example, one of my favorites, uh, we have them do a, a social media fast. I have, as I said earlier, I have two sons. They both have iPhones, and these things, these are for many of their friends, their relationship with social media uh, is one of the most important morally formative factors in their lives. Now, let me not get too personal here, Chris, but how did that work out? Oh, it's, it's, it is a constant struggle. <laughs> I have done everything I can, honestly, with my kids to try to shield them from the, the addictions that I see in so many of their friends. I regularly feed them articles and talk to them about the smartest people in the world are sitting out there in Silicon Valley, and they are trying to find ways of getting you to stay on your iPhone. If you're not aware of that, well, you are fighting them with one hand tied behind your back. So what happens is we ask them to say, okay, pick some social media. Um, Pick something that's going to be hard for you to do and refrain. Don't use it for one week. Just go cold turkey for one week. And just as importantly, stay off Netflix and say Amazon Prime. And then replace the time that you would have spent on engaged in those activities with something worthwhile. Read a book, call your parents, do some exercise, do, replace that time with something that's of genuine and real value. And, uh, and I, I simply have to say, for many of my students, this is a kind of transformative experience for them. This is probably the hardest of the exercises we have them do and the one that they find to be the most meaningful. Because at the end of the day, so many of our students are... They're addicted to social media in various ways, and they know it, and they don't like it, but they don't know what to do about it. And so, you know, it's one week in their lives. Our aspirations are really high. Whether that continues, we don't know. We hope we do. There's only so much you can do in an academic course. But that's the kind of thing that we're doing in the in this in this class that I think really makes it very, very different and personally engaging to them in a way that the previous version is is was not and that other classes like this are not. And it's, you know, it is definitely controversial, right? So what we are saying is we, in a class like this at the Naval Academy, we need to get inside of you. 
it's really important that you start thinking about what's going on inside your mind and your heart and that you start working on that. That's the message of the Blackheart's book, right? Your emotions determine what you do. And you need to develop the ability to exercise control over your emotions. And, and that's what these exercises are designed to do. And I can simply say, when we read these reflection papers by these students, the students, it is by far their favorite part of the class. It's the hardest part of the class for them personally. And most of them, at least at the end of the day, say, I'm going to find something to do to habitually continue these activities over the course of our lives. And of course, that's one of the core elements of the class, right? The purpose of this course is to prepare them for military officership for circumstances that they cannot now predict. And so they need to start preparing now for crises that they cannot even imagine top 5, 10, 15 years into the future. So, Professor, what I'm hearing you say is you're not just teaching Aristotelian ethics. I mean, we'll talk about Aristotle, but you're actually trying to help the students, the midshipmen here, understand how they can bring virtue into their own lives. And this is just a starting point, right? This is just the basis of their philosophical, ethical training. But what you're also doing is trying to get their flywheel, so to speak, going so they can continue to learn. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, of course, only so much you can do in an academic class where you meet three hours a week. There's only so much you can do in one semester. And so the hope for this class is that we engage the interests of our students sufficiently that they want to continue to think and reflect and shape their character when the class is over, long after the class is over. If that happens, then this class will have really, really great value going forward. And so this is an indication of what I do at the end of the class, you know, my last class period, what I do is I just give them book recommendations. I, you know, we chat, we, we talk about the semester. I ask them how it went. And I say, you know, um, we've scratched the surface on, uh, on a number of really important topics, but it's not going to do you any good if you don't continue it on into the future. One of the ways in which you can continue to work through these, the topics we've covered in this class is by reading great literature. The, the best books I've ever read are books that have been recommended to me. And so I give them my book recommendations and I say, and on many of the different topics in the course. So I say, for example, if you're interested in temperance, then here is a book that you can read on, on temperance. If you're interested in the virtues, here is a book on the virtues. If you're interested in just war theory, here is a book on just war theory. And so the whole idea is this course is designed to help you get started in a lifelong process that will help you be a better human being and a better officer in the Navy and Marine Corps. Professor Everly, thanks for the description of this course. It sounds like it's been a lot of work to get here, why you did it, and how it got done. And there's more to the story relative to these podcasts. and succeeding sessions, I'll be joined by other professors who have taken an active role in building this new course. And we'll be diving into more elements of what the course is all about. Professor, thanks a lot. Great to be here. Thank you very much, Michael.